1: Welcome to the New Books
0: Network. I'm Caleb Zacharin, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books and Intellectual History. Today I'm speaking with Samuel Moyne, Chancellor Kent Professor of Law and History at Yale University, about his new book, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. There are few scholars today who write with the same lucidity and dexterity as Sam. Liberalism Against Itself is yet another brilliant entry into his bibliography at center stage appears Cold War liberalism, one of the dominant Western ideologies appearing in the post-World War II era. Cold War liberals like Isaiah Berlin, Gertrude Himmelfar, and Karl Popper refashioned liberalism, severing it from its emancipatory roots. Through a series of highly focused intellectual biographies, Sam examines how liberalism is transformed, paving the way for successor ideologies like neoliberalism and neoconservatism. Sam, thanks for joining us today on The New Books Network so much for having me. I absolutely loved, loved re- reading every second of it. Um, and, you know, I think just before jumping into the contents of the book, because uh, there's so much to talk about. Uh, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well,
1: I am from Missouri and I went to college there where I was exposed by my teachers to intellectual history. And through a series of, you know, fortunate or unfortunate events, I ended up a law professor. But Uh, I got the opportunity to give some lectures at the University of Oxford in a series on the history of political thought. So it was, you know, an opportunity for me to kind of do what I always wanted to do, which was explore the intellectual history of the 20th century. And I defiantly ignored law as a topic and, you know, picked out an era. I hadn't much worked on because I'd written a dissertation more about the earlier period and have written most of of my later writings, um, especially about human rights and so forth, about a later period. And yet this period right after World War II really kind of was calling to me. And so I thought, given the absence of any book about Cold War liberalism that I knew about, I would try to kind of take a
0: stab at capturing the spirit of that movement. So you, you begin the book by discussing the work of Judith Schlar, who, uh, Judith Sklar is really such a fascinating person who I feel like is her ideas are, are very under discussed, especially compared to some of the other people that you profile in this book. Uh, but you, you really look at her book after Utopia published in 1957. Uh, and you know what is it about this book that then drew so much to it? Uh, you, you talk about you you constantly uh, return to the ideas that she deals with in this book so uh, if, if you could talk about this book and how it relates to Cold War liberalism more broadly.
1: so Schlar is, is maybe renowned in in you know restricted circles for her own rather brilliant version of Cold War liberalism epitomized by, an essay she wrote a few years before she died in the last year of the Cold War, 1989, called "The Liberalism of Fear," you know, which became you know very widely, you know, cited and read um, and taught. And what impressed me about her first book, uh, published in the 1950s, was that she emerged uh, as a kind of social democratic critic. Of the Cold War liberal political thought that was was becoming hegemonic in her own era, and you know she voiced a lot of skepticism about various features of it. And um, I have always loved that first book of hers, After Utopia, and it seemed like an interesting. Um, opportunity, not just to give her more airtime than she usually gets, especially this earliest phase in her career, but to see how she developed in her first book, a kind of multifaceted critique of, uh, the war liberals. And so it's for that reason that I not only introduce her and give her her own chapter the first, but also kind of return to her across the book because uh, she seems as if she was a, had some insights into, um, what, what, what everyone else embracing Cold War liberalism before her was doing. Uh, and so that's the kind of, you know, conceit of the book that she's the muse and she's, you know, constantly present. Um, and I, I not only call on her powers, uh, as you do with muses, but you kind of keep yeah you, the, uh, that,
0: that kind of, you know, commentator constantly in, in, the frame. You constantly, uh, bring her back up throughout the book, kind of taking some of her early ideas and playing them against the other ideas that, um, that you look at. Um, but you know, what is the sort of, uh, in, in, your review, the essence of Schlar's worry about how liberalism was transforming in this uh, post-World War II period? She makes an allegation that liberals
1: uh, are, are reaching the, the last stage of their historic abandonment of the Enlightenment with its promise to emancipate our agency and our powers. Now, I'm, I'm a little bit in tension with Schlar because, as I mentioned, uh, like a, a more recent uh, great analyst of the history of liberalism, Amanda Anderson, a literary critic, Schlar thought there were kind of long-term reasons why liberals got anxious and nervous about emancipation, really from the moment that the Jacobins begin playing with the fire of political modernity. But I, I do think what's of great and and lasting value in Schlar's um, version of that argument is that she said whatever had occurred before World War II, the period after World War II led liberals to a kind of ex- very extreme version of doubts that it's even worth emancipating uh, human beings because they'll likely just use that freedom to, um, you know, embrace tyranny. And she shows, um, that even in this early period, when in practice, liberals, even Cold War liberals are building the biggest liberal states, the most redistributive liberal states that they ever have. Cold War liberal theorists were, um, kind of overlapping to a substantial degree with early neoliberals like Friedrich Hayek. And she, even in the 1950s, writes this fascinating um, passage in her book uh, that's about how the liberal abandonment of the Enlightenment was leading to too much similarity to those uh, neoliberals, as they were already called. Um, and so I, I'm very interested in that criticism because I think it's proved you know, more profound than she could have known at the time, says, of course, we now live in a neoliberal age, and we have to ask: How did we get from Cold War liberalism into it?
0: Yeah, so so to bring in, um, you know, a bit of the second person that you profile, Isaiah Berlin. You, you look at different uh, aspects of Berlin, but you also talk about how Berlin looked at Romanticism uh, and this kind of a, I guess you could call it like a political demonology. I think you you use that term. Um, to describe how people seem to blame like berlin in particular and others blame rousseau blame the french revolution for uh the eventual uh you know totalitarian explosions of the 20th century so i was wondering if you could explain that idea why, why is it that people would think that rousseau or some thinkers from a hundred years before would somehow be responsible for political activities that would happen much later so
1: i i could have taken up isaiah berlin because he you know, seems to fall prey uh, to Schlar's criticisms of Cold War liberalism. He ends up with a, a more or less libertarian uh, approach to liberalism with his famous theory of, of negative liberty, and and that puts him in proximity to Hayek and neoliberalism, even if Berlin was never a neoliberal. But in the second chapter, I thought, let me do something unexpected and find something to praise in his work, even against his one time student, which Judith Schlar had been at Harvard in the 1950s. And what I single out is Berlin's rather floridly positive, uh, understanding of the political significance of r- romanticism in, in literature and philosophy now for background. You know the first half of this book, and in, in general, is about how Cold War liberals get rid of a lot of liberal sources. I've already mentioned the Enlightenment, but um, they also scapegoated um, romanticism, often seen as the opposite of the Enlightenment, as the source of 20th century totalitarianism. The most obvious person who did so was a, an Israeli uh, author named. Jacob Talmel, an author of one of the most significant cold war tracks called the origins of totalitarian democracy. And, um, even Schlar in her book after utopia is pretty negative about romanticism, she doesn't blame romanticism for leading to totalitarianism. Um, but she does say it, it led people to withdraw from politics and gave them no resources to kind of combat um, totalitarianism in the name of, of of emancipation. So Berlin takes a totally different view, even though he's kind of a charter member of Cold War liberal political thought. He says that liberalism emerges uh, in alliance with romanticism. Of course, he's completely right about this. If we think back to uh, John Stuart Mill, who's on liberty, is so different from 20th century defenses of liberalism because it's a theory of society as the production of creative individuality. That's the reason why freedom should be endorsed, not as a first-order value, but uh, as something that will enable self- invention and collective self-invention. Uh, and there are lots of other examples, Benjamin Constant, the Swiss uh liberal uh, uh, approximately the same era as Mill, also a romantic. Alexis de Tocqueville uh also a romantic. And uh one of Berlin's greatest essays is about Mill and says, you know, there there's this tension because what if limiting the state as uh, as Mill proposes in On Liberty, doesn't actually do enough to promote individuality, what then? He w- Mill would have to choose between, let's say, his libertarianism and his romanticism. And my suggestion is that uh, Berlin was talking about the past of liberalism, but he was also talking about himself and the choice he had made, notwithstanding his admiration for romanticism's really transformation our whole sense of what our lives are about um, and the kind of politics of Cold War liberalism that Berlin embraced precisely in saying, if we say government is, uh, has you know, a, a role in the production of the circumstances of individuality, it will use that theory of positive liberty so-called to as an alibi for totalitarianism. But Berlin clearly felt that this was, you know, at least something that had a, a hold over him too, even as he became much more famous, not as someone who saved romanticism from cold war, liberal scorn, but called for negative Liberty. So I try to use him kind of against type, if you like to, remind us how much was at stake, uh, in the deaccessioning of these old sources for liberals, which Jean-Jacques Rousseau had been, which the French revolution, a great inspiration for liberalism, uh, had been, and then romanticism as this extraordinary development, which imposed, imposed, imposes on all of us to this day, a kind of imperative to be creative and new with our lives which is a high liberal
0: calling. The next person that you that you discuss is Karl Popper uh and and you don't look at his uh, scientific um philosophy of science. You look at his his uh his views on on history and politics. Uh and I would say this is the section where you're, you're probably most critical uh where you know the scholar in Berlin and then even with other uh, the other people that you discuss, you know, you you really try and maybe not a perfect balance necessarily, but you really try and find uh look at the new you know, highlight the uh, the nuances. But with Popper, I would say that you really have a lot of uh negative things to say. So what is it about Popper that uh that that just uh you know maybe pisses you off as the wrong wrong term, but what is that Popper that you that that frustrates you? I think irritation, you know,
1: frustration are are good words. Um and maybe, you know, I let those those get the better of me because Uh, I, I did want to, you know, as most historians should be, you know, try to understand people and their times and grasp what they're doing, even if, you know, those, you know, past actors couldn't foresee the consequences of their work. I think, um, maybe my rhetoric is, is not as, as, you know, as polished in that chapter, but I, I, in a sense do have a lot of admiration for, the, 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 not just the philosophy of science that Popper pioneered, but also his, his attempt to I- impose it, um, on, on history and politics. What I, what I try to say is that there were just some great ironies, um, in what otherwise seem like pretty unexceptionable arguments he makes against, um, thinking of history as having, um, uh, regularities of the kind that natural scientists find it. Um, One was that he really did set out um, to save socialism. I try to show that he had been a a socialist in his youth in in Austria uh, and uh, really was himself irritated and frustrated with the Austro-Marxists under whose rule he lived in uh, interwar Vienna uh, and who I think he unfairly blamed for the victory first of the Christian right, and then eventually the national socialists uh, in his city. Um, I do think it was unfair of him to kind of scapegoat those socialists um, as if they were to blame for the victory of the far right, let alone for Adolf Hitler's you know expansionism. Um, but it's still important that he is a leftist at the start, Um, and really thinks of himself as trying to provide some correctives for socialism but of course in the end becomes a Cold War liberal and and quite a conservative one by the end of his life part of the reason I try to show is that once again like Berlin he in a series of steps enters into proximity with neoliberalism and fair enough since Hayek got him a job at the London School of Economics and saved him from what Popper thought was Exile in New Zealand, where he wrote his major political works, like The Open Society and Its Enemies, um, and which he thought of as, you know, just, you know, uh, an intolerable place. Um, But, you know, he became an early member of the Molpela Society and so forth. But then there's the second, you know, kind of um, unintended consequence of Popper's work, which um, is that, you know, he is so hostile towards what he calls historicism, the idea that there are laws and history that he ends up just as other liberals were, you know, scapegoating the enlightenment or romanticism, uh, along with, you know, Rousseau and the French revolution for totalitarianism, uh, you know, Popper and his critique of historicism helped make. Uh, another philosopher, G.W.F. Hegel, as well as Karl Marx, um, kind of um, radioactive for liberals. Now, this was disastrous, I try to suggest, because liberals had believed in history as a form of opportunity for liberalism. And so Hegel may not have been a liberal personally, but liberals often became Hegelians and As the 19th century passed, they learned a lot from Marx, especially Marx's critique of a merely formal or legal freedom. And liberals eventually got the memo that they too need to make freedoms real and social. And that's what, of course, they were trying to do in Popper's own period when they were building welfare states, you know, belatedly after the ravages of their, you know, misalliance with 19th century capitalism. And so I I wouldn't say Popper is exactly to blame, but he's symbolic for me of a a liberal renunciation of history as uh, a forum of progressive opportunity for liberalism, merely because the Soviets also famously made claims on it in in saying things about how history guaranteed, you know, the coming of, of, you know, revolution and communism. And so, um... Maybe I went a little overboard, but I think Popper is 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 useful to kind of get at this last deaccessioning that Cold War liberals engage in, which leads them to give us a, a form of liberalism that's just radically different
0: than what's come before. You know, to what extent do you think pointing the finger at um, Hegel at this period of time was a matter of just his German heritage and the fact that the enemy was German? And then also at the same time with Marx too, that, oh, well the Soviets are claiming, you know, that that they have this progressive history. You know, do you think that that's, that, th- that it was hard for them to kind of actually read these authors on their own terms? Absolutely.
1: I mean, it's, it's remained hard, um, really. Um, and, and yet, um, you know, before World War One, when Hegel really gets, you know, marginalized in Anglo-American thought, Hegel was a central resource for, 19th century Americans in Britain sent uh, Marx, you know I think uh, he, he is was too. I mean I think Marx was less affected by just being German but certainly the facts that the Soviets understandably claimed him meant that he increasingly became off-limits uh, and the roots of tyranny were then, You know, ascribe to Marx's thought rather than seeing it as something that could help liberalism avoid its own mistakes. Uh, So I completely I take your point that it's it's understandable what happened, but we also have to register the long term. I think you know more or less catastrophic effects intellectually, Um, and the way I try to put this in in you know what I think of as one of the more important passages of the book is looking after 1989. When of course Francis Fukuyama, a kind of right-wing Hegelian, declares that, you know, Hegel's was correct, but insofar as we're done now. Um, whereas a lot of liberals sort of greet the end of history as Fukuyama did, with a kind of you know, sense of melancholy, um, that they've they've been deprived through their own actions of any sense of fulfillment of liberal ideals themselves in history uh and and I think you know it's not like popper is exactly to blame for that but he helps I hope you know symbolize um that process
0: of abandonment of history as a, set- a setting yeah I think that that really comes through uh in the chap in that chapter uh it, you know it, moving to to the next person because I think uh you know, once we once we sort of talk about the different characters in the book, then it'll be easier to um, kind of look at some of the the bigger picture notions around cultural liberalism that you get at, uh, especially with your, with the last chapter that kind of brings us up to date. Um, but you talk about someone who you know I, I think doesn't get enough attention, Gertrude Himmelfarb, who really is such a, a fascinating uh, figure, um, and and you look at her uh, her kind of reading of Lord Acton and and the kind of reviving of him in this period of him kind of being a sort of a, maybe a saint of Cold War liberalism. So sort of if you you could introduce, uh, you know, people might've been familiar with Popper in Berlin, but, uh, you know, for those who don't know who's Gertrude Himmelfarb and, and, uh, you know, why did you include her in this chapter? Well, Gertrude Himmelfarb is
1: unfortunately not as well known as her husband, Irving Kristol, or for that matter, son, Bill Kristol. Um, And yeah, I think she deserves the most credit for inventing neoconservative thought. And I try to kind of turn to her, not just to rectify kind of the wrong of consigning her to the margin, um, but also because it's crucial that she comes out of Cold War liberalism. And so just as it's an anteroom to neoliberalism, it also proves for her and I think others an anteroom to neoconservatism. But there are also other reasons why she's of great importance to the book. One is that she helps highlight um, the importance of religion in general and Christianity in particular to Cold War liberalism and a particular Augustinian form of Christianity. Uh, even as, you know, she helps begin to think about what to say, about the fact that essentially all the Cold War liberals certainly in this book are Jewish by background. Uh, And so I try to introduce the edgy argument that we should think even of Jewish Cold War liberals as much more interested in Christianity than they were either in Judaism, Jewish experience, or secular liberalism, which prevailed
0: in the 90s. And and, and what is it about Christianity? They're all, uh, for the most part, they are uh, maybe non-practicing Jews is the way to describe it. I think uh, Popper was baptized Lutheran. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, if you could just talk a little bit more about that, about these, you know, kind of secularized Jews and, and their turn towards Christianity and towards uh, Cold War liberalism. The back half of the book in general is about,
1: you know, new sources to um, for liberals to rely upon once they've purged the emancipatory sources of liberalism from their tradition. And Lord Acton is a fascinating example, you know, peripheral in his time as an Anglo-German liberal Catholic, um, but an Augustinian one, Um, and and yet extremely useful, as you said, to a range of people in the 1940s, including, once again, Hayek, uh, who planned to call the Montpellier Society the Acton-Tocqueville Society before he was convinced Not to do so. Uh, So, I mean, mainly, I I try to show that people like Himmelfarb, as well as her husband, you know, think that the more Hegelian and progressivist liberalism they've inherited, um, it it is, it needs to be overturned, um, and that the Augustinian perspective, um, which emphasizes original sin, is. A fascinating and useful device to impose limits on human ambition, even if you don't have religious reasons to do so. Um, if you think that you know calling for freedom and equality will lead liberalism to become communism, then you just want limits on the amount of freedom and equality that people should strive for, uh, even when, if they're liberals of any kind, they say. It's you know, freedom is important to some extent. And so this Augustinian sense of sin that Himmelfar dramatizes is a way of saying this liberalism should be a liberalism of fear, fear of the Lord. Uh, and it, if we insist that Christianity, this form of it, has political uses, then it's something that even secular Jews uh, can 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 celebrate. I say in, in the book that, you know, Hannah Arendt uh, at one point kind of quipped that Orthodox Judaism was the Judaism she didn't practice. And I try to add to her joke that Orthodox Christianity, neo-orthodox Christianity of act and sort, was the political religion that uh, Cold War liberals wanted to see everyone else embrace. Uh, because it would save them, allegedly, from uh, tyranny and totalitarianism.
0: And is this, uh, you know, liberalism of fear that you see embodied in Himmelfarb, is this similar to what Schlar would later embrace, uh, or or different? Well, <laughs> you know, using that phrase, I'm trying to troll
1: Schlar because Schlar herself was incredibly secular throughout her life. Uh, and I even show that in After Utopia, she was very dubious about the religious turn of, uh, uh, of Cold War liberals and others in her youth, um, and yet it, it seems to me that Schlar could have seen, as as she became a Cold War liberalism liberal herself, that taking on board the ambiance of anxiety and fear about the risk of tyranny and totalitarianism and the need to organize liberalism in light of, you know, human depravity, in a sense embraces, you know, know, in secular terms, some of the Augustinian premises that Himmelfarm uh, called for. So I think there's an overlap at best, and I think I'd have to spell that out. It's a great question for that reason. Um, but if the book is really about how the 19th century liberalism of hope was overthrown in the middle of the 20th century in the name of a liberalism of fear, which remains so prominent in our lifetimes. Well, then the Christian moment in that transition seems absolutely pivotal, no matter whether any of its heirs later kind of understand where they're getting this liberalism of fear from.
0: A person that you you next profile in this, uh, Hannah Arendt, if I if I remember correctly, she's she never really ever identified as as a liberal. She, you know, at various points of time identified as a radical and then uh you know maybe never called herself a conservative, but sort of became conservative esque. Uh, you know. what what was Hannah Arendt's contribution in your view to to Cold War liberalism as someone that might not have actually identified with that uh that name?
1: I I I have kind of a few reasons for for selecting her for attention. I mean, tongue-in-cheek, I call her a, a kind of fellow traveler of Cold War liberalism. Even if she wasn't one herself, she adopted a lot of the views of Cold War liberalism. Of course, she was responsible for the, you know, enormous rise of the theory of totalitarianism, which was basically a Cold War liberal project, even if she, you know, forged her own idiosyncratic version. But if you look at um, her own understanding of the history of philosophy, although there's, of course, a lot of originality in her thinking about the Greeks and so forth uh, and Romans especially, she also kind of concurred with the Cold War liberals on um, what to get rid of from the canon, um, like Rousseau, like the French Revolution, which she really demonized like Hegel. Uh, and so there's there's that first reason that I think we need to recognize much more than we have in, in a kind of more celebratory mode around Arendt, just how indentured she was to the implausible outlook of the Cold War liberals, even not kind of consenting to be one. And then uh, there is, I think, the use she provides in thinking about two related topics uh, in cold war liberalism. One is, uh, the fact that cold war liberals essentially have nothing to say about decolonization, you know, the, the most emancipatory, uh, moment maybe ever. And, and in a certain sense, a moment of the last gasp of 19th century liberal emancipation, which, um, with which these, cold warriors couldn't identify and, and Aron is really useful because she doesn't pass over decolonization and silence. She actively stigmatizes it, uh, in on revolution, which I think is one of her great books, but also one that's, you know, kind of really about, um, the French revolution's legacy and the decolonization of the world. And then I also think she's useful. I try to argue, um, to continue thinking about the Cold War liberals as Jews, but Jews who, um, if they had a, 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 a Jewish element to their thought, it was a Zionist element. And of course, famously, Arendt was very briefly a Zionist in the later 1930s, and early 1940s, but argued in a sense for decolonization before its time, including armed struggle and um, not exactly national emancipation, but certainly um a kind of decolonization of the british empire um and the the cold war liberals were much more permanently zionist berlin was talmon was and it it, it 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 it's as if um they make an exemption for uh israel which is a site of you know um Armed struggle for decolonization and national emancipation um, from their otherwise withering verdict about 19th century liberalism. Uh, and so I think she's useful in getting at some things that th- the Cold War liberals didn't always directly say about the nature.
0: Yeah, I think that that particular argument is really pow- that was really powerful in the book, just kind of highlighting that the, the sort of exception that proves the rule, that this is the instance where the 19th century liberalism with emancipatory violence and with the optimism, uh, this is where it's acceptable. But in these other cases, no, this is where we need to have a kind of a, almost a, a, a conservative, uh, you know, Burkean uh, style, style approach to it. Um, you know, uh, just to kind of round out the, the people that you cover. Uh, the last intellectual biography you, you look at is, is Lionel Trilling. Um, and, you know, just to, to sort of, uh, seal, seal it with all the people that you look at, uh, you know, what is Lionel Trilling's contribution to Cold War liberalism in your view?
1: Well, so if, if I'm a little unfair to Popper, I think I, I, I just emerged from my reading kind of enamored with Trilling and I found it really hard to, um, Kind of uh, dislike him because I think he was incredibly subtle, uh, and uh, so the 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 kind of official point of the chapter about him, which concludes the book, is um, you know mainly I think to give a sense of how not just sin, but in in a secular guise, um, Sigmund Freud's account of. Um, human aggression could serve Cold War liberals. And Trilling is incredibly interesting because he works really hard to develop a reading of psychoanalysis that has approximately the same function as Himmelfarb's Augustinian theory. Um, Because the point is to say we should give up on emancipation because human beings aren't up for it. They're not just libidinal, uh, but they're evil just now in a kind of secular framework that emphasizes Freud's so-called death drive. But what I try to show is that Trilling is, you know, a little more interesting than just adding a new source to, for liberalism and psychoanalysis, because he's very mournful in his creation of Cold War liberalism. And I try to show that he in a sense, also never really gives up on 19th century liberalism, which had led him in the thirties to be a fellow traveler, um, something he never really gets over um, because in his mature period, when he writes the, you know, the essays that become the liberal imagination, a huge bestseller um, of the cold war, he is very open about the costs of renunciation of the past liberal Optimism, and much of his work, I think, can be read as a kind of retrospective act of mourning the very creation of Cold War liberalism that continues to make Trilling famous in many
0: quarters. You mentioned a little bit that part of what what was interesting about Cold War liberalism as a topic is that it, it kind of was this bridge towards sort sub- of an interesting successor ideologies. Um, so. You know, what do you see as the kind of relation, the relationship between Cold War liberalism and to, uh, you know, neoliberalism and neoconservatism? Do you think that neoliberalism and neoconservatism are logical outgrowths or were they paths taken, uh, you know, that were highly contingent on, on most of the factors? I, I, I think that, um, Cold War liberalism stands
1: on its own, but it seems as if its propensity um, to devolve into other things means it's, it's fragile and unstable. And so of course it could be that people can hew to it permanently. Uh, I mean, Isaiah Berlin basically did, uh, they can revive it as many people have done in various circumstances. But my hope is that the book illustrates that, um, it's not exactly contingent that, um, it has this potential to degrade into other things. And I think that's, you know, as I began thinking about it, it it seemed to me a really important way of thinking about um, ideologies. Some are relatively more stable. Some are relatively less stable. And so it's not going to be good enough to say, well, there's a distinction between one ideology and another if the first predictably for many of, of its Votaries devolves into um, these successor movements. So, um, you know, the main point of the book is still that the Cold War liberalist liberals changed liberalism. Trilling, you know, has been haunted by allegations that well, he would have become a neoconservative, his students did, et cetera, and that somehow matters less to me than what he did to liberalism that he mourned his own accomplishment in a certain way but it also matters you know given how much water there is under the bridge since this period that we've seen these successor movements arise would and that couldn't have happened um I, I believe out of the earlier forms of liberalism so we should care both about cold war liberalism in its own right and for what it could become
0: liberalism in the past for the past 10 years uh, you know maybe even a little longer has has gone through uh, a really tumultuous period, uh, where where many people are are saying that maybe it's time to uh, leave liberalism behind. There there you know people uh, mostly on the right, it's some on the left, who refer to themselves as post-liberals. Uh, yet it it seems like you, you want to hold on to liberalism, or or rather you want to go and resuscitate uh, some of the ideas of liberalism that the Cold War liberals uh, cut off. So uh, you know. My my question is, you know, in the epilogue you call it why Cold War liberalism keeps failing, which to me seems like a any reference to a reference to Patrick Neen's book Why Liberalism Failed. So, you know, what is your uh, you know argument to Patrick Dene about why yes, liberalism Cold War liberalism failed, but but you know liberalism isn't all that bad or there's aspects of liberalism. What do you want to what do you want to <laughs> Well, so I mean, th- this book is
1: very much you know it began as a response to Pat Deneen and. Um, really, the moment after 2016 uh, when people began to say, especially on the right, but also sometimes on the left, that liberalism, it, it, its bankruptcy is proven by populism or whatever. And um, we need some successor ideology. And I actually reviewed Deneen's book when it came out. And, you know, my, my sense is that while, you know, it, it takes a view of liberalism that says it's 500 years old and stands or falls as a kind of civilizational block that's working itself pure in our times. That you know the 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 historian in me revolts against these kinds of grand statements, since we know that liberals don't even have a self conscious sense of themselves as liberals until after the French Revolution, and of course their liberalism was so different than. Uh, when the Cold War mutated it and it began to decline into the kinds of neoconservatism and neoliberalism that Deneen and, and others of that ilk are actually very, very firm ground to condemn. Um, and so I don't think we have a, a credible form of liberalism just to exume from the past, but that doesn't mean there aren't elements of liberalism that we would want to um, harness and rehabilitate and work into a new package. It may not matter whether it ends up being called liberalism as long as we can rescue the liberal commitment saw sought to the emancipation of our agency, to creative agency in particular along romantic lines, to a sense of possibility in historical time. Um, And so my response is not kind of either exonerating of liberalism for its mistakes, nor um, kind of just wants to sweep it away. I think we have to be more discriminating than that. And it's in that spirit that the book tries to lay out a a critique of Deneen implicitly that um, says in every moment we have parts of the past that are credible enough to try to work into something that is more credible than
0: anything we've seen today you still want to hold on to it maybe for a little a little while longer that there still is something about liberalism that is maybe worth preserving or at least worth uh rediscovering for the purpose of finding something new if would that be be accurate to say that's that's essentially
1: it i mean you know i'm I think at the present moment in the place we are are you know the the there's there's a reason to think that um you know the, the notion of liberalism has some meaning to people um and but we we don't have to stick with that label if we find a better label so i'm not against Post-liberalism as a rhetorical matter, because it's essential to call out liberal mistakes, you know, past and present. At the same time, uh, even if you read Danine closely, he's for preserving certain aspects of liberalism, and so it 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 would it it requires us to think about what what we're going to propose, not only what to label it and whatever we propose ought to have liberal features, the right ones and not the
0: wrong ones. How did you decide to, to write this book in the wake of humane? Were these sort of two separate projects or was this a, uh, you know, was, or is this something that you had been thinking about that you thought was a project? Like, are you gonna, are you gonna, you know, maybe go back to writing about current events again or, or
1: not, not so sure? Well, it, you know, there's always the temptation in life to engage in retconning. Uh, and I, can do it with the best of them and explain how there's unity to the seemingly random choices I've made. But I, I, I did want to get out of a kind of 10 year period of writing about a certain narrow set of things, kind of liberalism and in international politics, and in and, and particular legal liberalism and in international politics. And so I thought it would be a way of, of keeping some consistency. Um, while, you know, also trying to return to some roots I feared losing, you know, an in intellectual history and also, um, focusing on some events of, 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 and debates of my time that are, are have just like evolved beyond whatever motive made me to think about, um, human rights and humanitarian law. In the '90s, we're just at a very different moment when, as you say, liberalism is under siege, and I think it's an opportunity not to circle the wagons, but to see what's, you know, plausible about that siege, but also how we can, you know, respond more creatively than past moments when liberals have seen themselves threatened.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the approach that you took. I, I'm glad that you 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 circled back to. Uh, you know took to writing about about intellectual history i think i think that was a, a great decision and, and also i think that you know you, you offer things in here that are a much better response than like kind of the the normal uh you know arguments or responses to someone like denine which are basically like oh what liberalism is great you know we're still on this path towards progressive history uh you know shut up and don't <laughs> and and don't uh it's, it, it don't argue, you know. Don't argue with uh, with liberalism's forward march. Um, you know, instead of responding to, you know, great, great criticisms that people, you know, recently have been, have been bringing up. Uh, well, once again, thank you so much for, for being being guest to the New Books Network. It was really great speaking with you.